This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't get distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hierarchies are necessary and valuable. That's what the right says. The left says, yeah, wait a minute, though. The hierarchy tends towards ossification and corruption, and it dispossesses people at the bottom. Well, and those are both true, and that's part of that opponent processing. The hierarchies tend towards corruption. They need to be taken care of. It's like, yes, how much should we take care of them versus how much should we sustain the hierarchy? And the answer is, we don't know, and it changes. I'm Dr. Oz, and this is the Dr. Oz Podcast. He's been called an accidental icon of the modern-day philosophical movement. Dr. Jordan Peterson's work as a clinical psychology professor at the University of Toronto has gained international recognition for his profound and often controversial insights. Today, Dr. Peterson is back with me to break down his latest book, The 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, and help all of us gain a better understanding of our full potential. So one thing that you've raised my consciousness, is whether we would even have a civilization if we were unable to believe in things bigger than us. So I'm of Turkish origin, Mm -hmm. and I went back to Turkey this summer, in part because I was visiting the Syrian refugees, but within an hour drive of this refugee camp was the oldest civilization known to mankind. It's called Gebekli Tepe. Mm -hmm. The literal translation is Potbelly Hill. It's 12,000 years old three times older than the pyramids, four times older than Stonehenge. And they had big sculptures. And the reason I was stunned by it is I was always taught in school, I don't know what you learned, but 
you're in a farming community, you probably had some discussion of how farming came about. But I, uh, but I, I learned farming happened, and then because of that, we had free time. We sent off a couple of people to be religious leaders. They went off and wrote all the religious tomes, and um, that's how civilization evolved. Mm. But Gebekli didn't have a agricultural community. It was a hunter-gatherer community, mm-hmm. which meant that hunter-gatherers were able to build temples to their gods. And because they could believe in things bigger than themselves, they began to think they can control the world around themselves. So follow this, it's important. Agriculture came because Mm -hmm. of a belief in deities, not the opposite. Completely fits everything in my mind that I had ever Well, if you're a hunter, the question is, what should you hunt? See, and we're built on a hunting platform, human beings, because we can throw and aim. So then the question is, once your brain starts to develop is, okay, What's the ultimate aim? Right? And you might think, well, it's, it's, it's to hunt. It's like, no, it's to provision. Okay, so how do you provision? By aiming at transcendent things. Because then everyone cooperates and everyone shares. And we all work together. Mm-hmm. And we get rid of hunger as such. Yeah. Instead of aiming at a particular animal. Right? We aim at something higher. And it works. And so that's encapsulated in our narratives. And then the, the aim issue is really fundamental to that. Like, what's at the center? What's the point that we're aiming at? And that's the ultimate point. It's the highest possible aim. It's even in our language. And everything we do has to do with aim. It shows you how deeply the idea of hunting is in us. We're carnivorous chimpanzees, fundamentally. You, you know, use the word sin. Hmm? That's right. That sin is to miss your target. Miss your target, yeah. It's an archery term, hamartia. It means to miss the, miss the mark. Yeah, that's a really useful thing to know. It's like, well, what's a sin? Well, it's when you miss your target. Well, how do you miss your target? How about you don't aim? How about you don't know how to aim? How about you refuse to aim? How about you have no aim? And, and no one can live under those conditions. We need an aim. It orients us. It gives us direction. It, it gives our life meaning. It's like literally. It does that neurologically. So that begs the question, without culture, you know, 70,000 years ago, we believe humans started the diaspora from Northern Africa. At least 12,000 years ago, you have Gebekli Tepe. Abraham, by the way, was born there. Not surprisingly, a lot of Christ's disciples were in that area. I mean, it's, you start to begin to realize that there's lots of layers of culture that got us to where we got. Mm-hmm. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying there's a collective unconscious that senses thousands of years of human evolution, and that culture cannot be discarded. You throw that culture, that faith away, those traditions, even if you're not quite sure why they exist. Okay. You toss them away and you discard them, there will be consequences. Okay, so the first thing is that some of the best scientists that I knew, like Jak Panksepp, who was a great neuroscientist who studied emotion, and I think he was probably one of the five greatest scientists of emotion. He was really interested in, in archetypal ideas. The people who study the emotional and motivational systems in the brain are the ones that are most convinced about the reality of archetypal issues. So, for example, so, so, again, so the people who understand how our brains work specifically. emotionally and motivate, who look at the emotion and motivational system, so the deep layers, not the cortical, right, the reptilian parts, yeah, the old that's parts. Right. Yeah, yeah. They're convinced that these archetypes are vital to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, not all of them, but many of them. Explain what an archetype is. An archetype, say, well, it's a behavioral pattern. That's that's what it would be most fundamentally a behavioral proclivity, and then. The secondary archetype would be the reflection of that in a story. So let's say one of our behavioral proclivities is to react in a certain way to a predator. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So how do we react to a predator? Two ways. Terror, freezing, to be turned to stone when you look at the medusa. That's the response of a prey animal to a predator. That's archetypal. It's wired into us. It happens way before you think, way faster than you can think. But then that's secondarily reflected in a story, and that story becomes abstracted. So the ground of the archetype would be the biology. And then the secondary manifestation would be the manifestation of that biology in action. And the archetypes are the most important things, I gather, because if they weren't important, we wouldn't be hardwired to react to them. That's right. That's exactly right. So, so but some of these archetypes aren't r- running away from it. They're also they're respecting your parents. Yes, some right? of them. Not, not, yes, not, well, you better respect your parents or you die. I mean, you have, you're <laughs> dependent on your parents for 18 years. It's like, yeah, there's, there's, filial, there's, there's filial respect built in. Now, it's, it's pliable because sometimes you have parents and if you respect them, you die. So there has to be some plasticity there. Mm. But as a, as a fundamental rule of thumb, it's there as a pattern. And I guess an archetype would also be something like the proclivity to learn language. Mm-hmm. No one really understands that, but it's obviously built into us. Even children who are quite impaired intellectually, with the general exception of really severely autistic kids, learn to speak. It's, it's built into our biology in a way that we really don't understand. Fear of snakes is built into our biology. For a long time, psychologists thought it was just no we just learned fear, and then psychologists thought, no, we learned to be afraid of some things more easily than others. So you could condition fear to pictures of spiders faster than you could condition fear to pictures of pistols, for example. Mm. But then it went farther than that. It's like, no, no, you're not just conditionable. You're actually innately afraid of snakes. But I don't think it's snakes. I think it's toothed reptilian predators, which is a broader cata- category yeah. than snakes. So, and that's the dragon, fundamentally, because the dragon looks like an amalgam of predatory cats, predatory birds, and predatory snakes, and maybe fire as well, which would have been an ancestral friend and enemy, right? Because fire is an ancestral friend and enemy. There's evidence, I think it was Richard Rangham wrote a very good book on fire a while back, a very good primatologist. He figured we'd been using fire for two million years, something like that, and that we um, we traded intestinal tract for brain. Once we learned to cook, and that was a secondary consequence of hunting, let's say, or at least associated with hunting, because our diet became so much more nutritious and calorie-rich, especially eating meat and fat, that we could afford to shrink our digestive system and trade it in for brain. Chimps spend about eight hours a day chewing, because mostly what they eat is leaves. It's like, go out and try to eat leaves. It's like, all you're going to do is chew, because they have no nutrition. So anyways, we're built on a hunting platform. We throw an aim. Even our perceptions are, are very aimed at something. And the metaphysical question, you see how the biology transforms itself into the abstraction. It's like, well, you have to have an aim because you're a hunter. It's like, well, what's the ultimate aim? That's the religious question. What should you hunt above all else? What should you devote your life to pursuing? So, so why are these stories the best way for us to articulate these negotiated rules that we all have with each other? Because the, because the, the principles are so complex that we weren't able to articulate them and understand them. So one of the things Nietzsche pointed out was, you know, you you tend to think that morality emerges in thought and then is imposed on behavior. We think up the rules and then we apply them. It's like, no, we evolve the rules. Then we observe them in behavior. Mm -hmm. Then we tell stories about them. And then out of the stories, we can abstract general principles. And then maybe we can get to the point of an articulated morality, but it's bottom up. Now, 
there's top-down effects because as you articulate, you start to change your behavior. But a lot of this is moved up from the bottom. One of the things I lecture about in my public appearances is the emergence of proto-morality in animals. So here's a great example. This is from Jak Panksepp, the scientist that I mentioned earlier. He wrote a book called Affective Neuroscience, which is a great book. Um, he said, here's what he did. Rats like to rough and tumble play. So if you take a juvenile rat, especially the males, they'll work to enter an arena where they can wrestle with another rat. And they really like it. It's play behavior. It's not aggression. It's distinguishable from aggression. Okay, so you put your two rats together. One's 10% bigger than the other. The 10% big rat just flattens the little rat. Sure. Pins them, just like kids. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but then you see, you don't play with someone once. You play with them multiple times in life. So the game isn't one bout. The game is repeated bouts. Okay, so now you pair the rats together. So the next time you pair them together, the little rat has to ask the big rat to play. That's the rule. Mm-hmm. Then if you pair them repeatedly, if the big rat doesn't let the little rat win 30% of the time, 30 or 40% of the time, it's some substantial amount of the time, the little rat won't play with them anymore. Huh. And so Panksepp is, is right, yeah. that's for sure. That's a major discovery because it's, it's the emergence of fair play yes. it, at the mammalian level. It's like if the, if the big rat plays unfair because the little rat doesn't get a chance, then the little rat won't play. So then you think, well, here's the morality. And this is what you say to your kids when you say, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it matters how, it matters how you play the game. You don't know what the hell you mean. It's like, well, what do you mean by that? It, yeah, it doesn't it matter. Does it matter to win? Yeah. Of course it matters to win. Okay, but let's define winning. There's the game. You can win the game. Okay, but the game isn't isolated because there's a whole bunch of games because it's a tournament. But then it's a tournament of tournaments because it's many games. So what you Your whole to, life. Your whole life, that's right, is a sequence of games. So what do you tell your kid? Play so that you will be invited to play. Because the winner is the person who's invited to play the most games. And so then, so what does that mean? It means, well, try to win because you're no fun if you don't try to win. Sharpen your skills because you're no fun if you don't try. Help your damn teammates because it's a team effort. And you want to push them up as you put yourself up. Distribute the spoils. Don't hog all the glory, right? If you're ahead when you're playing soccer, pass the damn ball. Right? Act, act in this admirable sportsmanlike manner. Well, what's that? It's prototypical morality. So then you think, well, there's he's a good sport. He does this well. Well, he's a good sport over here too. Here's another person who's a good sport and it's something different. And here's another person. And then we get a picture of what the good sport looks like, and that's the good citizen. And we start telling stories about that. But it's not like we understand, right? We can't understand. We have to build the story up from the behavior. And so if you look at these old stories. There's behavioral wisdom encoded in the stories. Here's an idea. Moses leads his people through the desert, right? And they're all fractious. They got out of a tyranny, but now they're in a damn desert. It's like out of the tyranny, out of the, kettle, out of the frying pan into the fire, right? So that's what happens. You go from a tyranny into a desert, not to the promised land, which is why people will stay in a tyranny. It's like, why do you stay in that tyranny? Well, we'd rather be here than in the desert because that's the next place. It's okay, well, now you're in the desert. So what do you do? Fragment and fight over what's important. So that's what Moses faces. It's like all these Israelites, they're fighting like mad. So they come to him, is outlined in the story. So he adjudicates their disputes and he spends like 10,000 hours listening to all the Israelites whine about everybody (laughs) and the desert and complain about God. And so this is driving Moses crazy. He's trying to figure out, well, how should these people live? And he's, he's actually adjudicating the cases. Well, then all of a sudden he goes up in a mountain and poof, the rules appear. It's like, 
Those are the rules by which you live. They're discoveries. It's like, oh, this is how you have to, this is how you have to conduct yourself behaviorally in order for everyone to prosper. It's bottom up. If he, if he wouldn't have gone out of the tyranny into the desert and done that, all that adjudication, he, the rules wouldn't have been revealed. Or you could say, let's say you're watching a wolf pack or a, trim, a, a, a troop of chimps. They have structure, behavioral structure. So that would be acting out the archetype. You're the anthropologist or the, or the ethologist and you're watching or the primatologist think, well, it's as if the chimps are following these rules. Well, that's us. Mm. That's us. We're watching ourselves over thousands of years. It's like, okay, what are we up to? Well, here's an interesting story about how things go badly. It's like, yeah, you're extracting out the essence of the behaviors. And you turn them into a story, and the story's compelling because you want to imitate it, right? Just like a child acting out his father or a child acting out her mother. You want to imitate it so that you get the drama down, you imitate the pattern, but then you can start to think, okay, well, there are principles that can be articulated that underlie these patterns. Oh, that's natural ethics, so it's, it's, and this is, this is a wonderful thing because it means that the natural ethic in some sense isn't just a rational construct. It's not just a floating abstraction. It's like the, the articulated ethic matches the image. It matches the story. And the story matches the behavior and the behavior matches the biology and the be- biology reflects the structure of, of being. It's just, that's the musical layering of all these layers, one on top of another. I'll be right back with Dr. Jordan Peterson. We've got lots more to talk about. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't get distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. So if we, if we get that it's not just random chance, not just a bunch of rules, but it's actually tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years 
of us seeing stuff, observing stuff, and our biology matches it. What's going on today? Why do we live in a society, I think the biggest epidemic is isolation and loneliness. Yeah. But it's manifested in a lot of disagreeable behavior. Mm-hmm. I've heard you use the word complexity management mm-hmm. as opposed to mental illness. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people think I'm depressed, I'm, I'm borderline, I'm you know personality, I've got this issue, I have that issue. But it's actually, I, if, I, if I understand you correctly, something that's much more common, something much more ubiquitous, something much more understandable, that we have a complexity management problem. Hmm. Yeah, well, the, the doctrine of turning to face that which confronts you is a complexity management solution. It's like, what do you do when horrible things are chasing you? Turn around, chase them back. That's your best bet. And then I think that is an unbelievably ancient human decision. Well, so that's the story of, that, that's the classic story of the dragon fight. You go out, the, the hero goes out to confront the dragon and rescues the virgin from her clutches. Well, what does that mean? It means that the standard human pattern of sexual attraction is for the person who decides to confront the predator in its lair to be reproductively successful. That's what that story means. It's like, well, that's worked for us. That's our fundamental story. And who knows how old that is? It's as old as, it's as, old as predator primates. That's how old it is. Maybe it's older than that. So that's at least several million years old. Hmm. But it goes back. Like Lynn Isbell, who's an anthropologist at UCLA, she makes the case that the reason that human beings have acute vision is because we were preyed upon by predatory snakes over a 60 million year period. Hmm. So we have unbelievably acute vision. And we're particularly good at seeing the kind of... um, camouflage patterns that snakes have on their skin in the lower half of our visual system. It's like snakes gave people vision. That's Lynn Isbell's theory. And the way she established that was she went around the world and she looked at the acuity of primate vision and correlated it with the prevalence of predatory serpents. So the more snakes, the better our vision. The more, exactly. Right. So that, and that's such a cool principle too, because there's a metaphysical principle there too, which is, you know, why, why does reality have an adversarial nature? Why would God set something on you, say? an enemy, an adversary makes you stronger. Well, isn't that cruel? It's like, not if the person who sets the adversary on you believes that you could win. Now, maybe that's an insufficient explanation, but there's something about it that's... You know, you can think about this biologically, too. I was reading The Master and His Emissary, which is quite an interesting book about hemispheric function, and and, uh, the author pointed out that if you want to make a very small movement with your right hand, the best way to do that is to put your left hand up and then to push against your right hand and push. Opponent processing. Precision in action is a consequence of opponent processing. You have opponent processing between the right and left hemispheres. To, to, to make things function, you need this, this opposition between powerful forces. And I think that's built into the opposition between chaos and order. That's hemispherically represented. But also something like the opposition between good and evil. Maybe you get a higher good when there's a opposition between good and evil. I mean, obviously, these are ideas that are at the absolute extent of my cognitive ability to try to think them through. But maybe the good you get when good and evil are both possibilities is a higher good than the good you get with just good. The tug of war, which you actually are, you artists do brilliantly, right? They, they stand on the border between order and chaos. They look in the chaos. Mm-hmm. They see patterns. And then they tell the people on the other side, hey, I just noticed a couple yeah. things over there. Yeah. Right? So, so 
if, if that's where we need to be, then in modern society, why is it that we can't get those two groups talking to each other? People who are primarily left brain, you know, or, organized order folks and the, the folks on the right side are more mm. chaos folks. What good, gives? Good, good, good question. Well, that's it. That's, that's something I've really been struggling with in my lectures. I, I try to make a case for left, the left and the right wing. Okay, so the right wing, the right wing, there's a variety of things that distinguish them, but we'll talk about one in particular. You have to accomplish useful things in the world just to survive, okay? And if you're going to do that in a social space, you do that by constructing a hierarchy. And if you construct a hierarchy, it's going to be of a certain steepness because the people at the top are going to be more successful than the people at the bottom. There's also hierarchies of productivity. So the people at the top are more productive than the people at the bottom. And those overlap to some degree. So you have to do useful things to survive. If you're going to do useful things in the social system, you have to build a hierarchy. Okay, so hierarchies are necessary and valuable. That's what the right says. The left says, yeah, wait a minute, though. The hierarchy tends towards ossification and corruption, and it dispossesses people at the bottom. Well, and those are both true. And that's part of that opponent processing. You need the hierarchy. Social animals organize themselves hierarchically. Hierarchies are way older than capitalism, way older than the West. They're older than trees. They're unbelievably ancient. There's no getting rid of the hierarchy. But hierarchies tend towards corruption and dispossession. And those so, are tied, by the way, with the lobster. Yes, exactly. Like yes, someone, gives, someone gave me this. Yeah, exactly. 350 million years of hierarchies. Now, that doesn't mean we should organize our societies on the lines of the lobsters. That's not <laughs> the point. The point is, is that you can't attribute the existence of hierarchy to the West or to capitalism. So that's a, that's a foolish critique. That's the basic Marxist critique is at least part of it. Okay, so the left wing says, wait a second now. The hierarchies tend towards corruption and they dispossess people and they need to be taken care of. It's like, yes. How much should we take care of them versus how much should we sustain the hierarchy? And the answer is, we don't know and it changes. So that's why you need political dialogue. Okay, so what's the fundamental necessity for political dialogue? Freedom of speech. So freedom of speech is the mechanism that keeps the opponent process balanced. And so you don't mess with freedom of speech, which is why I opposed the legislation that I opposed in Canada, which started all this political... The transgender legislation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just for two seconds on this. Yeah. So there was a, a law that said you must refer to transgender people the way they... They, they want you to, right? Picking the pronoun they use. Yes, that was part of the legislation, background part of the legislation. And, and you have, do you have any problems with transgender people being identified by what pronoun they use in private settings, in your practice, or in your, in your classrooms? My proclivity when people ask me to address them in a certain way is that if I believe that they're being straightforward in their communication, then I tend to accede to the demand, like a reasonable person does. So that wasn't the issue. The issue was the compulsion of speech and also the government's insistence that it was all right to build a social constructionist view of gender into the law, which is now the case in, well, it's the case in New York. It's also the case in Canada. And that's not appropriate because gender is not socially constructed in its entirety. It has a biological basis. So you don't build that into the law. So, but anyways, that it was the compelled speech issue that really got me. It's like, no, you don't have sovereign control over my speech. Never in the history of English common law has a, has a, has the legislative branch produced legislation that compelled voluntary speech. There has been restrictions on hate speech. There's more of those in Canada than there are in the U.S. And I don't agree with them either. I think that's a mistake, but that's a separate issue. Compulsion in speech, your Supreme Court deemed that invalid in 1942. 
no compulsion of speech in the private sphere, no matter what the reason. And I think that's the correct principle. And what's the issue with hate speech? Well, hate speech exists, clearly. The question is, it's the fundamental issue. Who defines hate? And that's like the Achilles tendon of the, the Achilles heel of the, of the law. It's like the answer is those people who you least want to define it. So you, what you want is you want to have people say their hateful things out in the open where you can keep an eye on them and where they can invalidate their own viewpoint, which is generally what happens. Invalidate their viewpoint. Yes. So they say something hateful, racist, for example. The society says, you guys, you're missing the boat. This, you're completely off target yeah. with this. Right. You get reprimanded, spanked, yeah. you get back in line. Right, exactly, exactly that. That's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, well, that's, and that's a good way of putting it because what it also means is that the people who espouse those opinions for whatever reason get appropriately subjected to social correction. That's good. You want them to be subjected to social correction. So what happens if the government passes a law saying you can't say those words? Then where do they go? Underground. And psychologically and socially. And that's not good because then you don't know what's going on. Like this thing that happened with Alex Jones is a good example of that. It's like, leave Alex Jones alone. Why? Because you, you want to see what he's up to. Not, not, not because you like him, but you want to see what he's up to. Yeah, absolutely. You want to see what people are up to. You know, because sometimes extremists are correct. Almost never. They're almost always dangerous beyond belief. But like one time in a thousand Things have changed so radically that someone who appears extreme is correct. Well, you've got to be able to know when that's the case. You've got to keep an eye on it. You know, and it's not clear to me at all that the, most of the followers of Alex Jones necessarily agree with him. Maybe they're mildly entertained by his antics, wh whatever it might be. But it was a mistake to go after him. So you've got to keep an eye on it. Plus, you shouldn't persecute people who are paranoid. <laughs> That was uh, Kissinger's big statement to Nixon, mm -hmm. you know, about Nixon. Even paranoid people have enemies. Right, right, right. <laughs> now you right. can confirm their bias. Right, that's exactly right. Yes, that's not a good idea. Why is every person watching us right now, and there are quite a few, suffering from anxiety, depression, addiction, all three together mm -hmm. even? How, how is it possible we're not all there in that quandary? Oh, well, first of all, many people are at different periods in their life. Right? It's a rare person who doesn't have a severe bout of anxiety at some point in their life, often because things collapse around them, you know, like they, they encounter some real catastrophe. Even with depression, if you look at the epidemiological studies, most people who eventually suffer depression had their first episode precipitated by something truly awful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we move in and out of states of terrible negative emotion throughout our life. Um, why, don't we, why don't we stay there? What makes us better? Almost subconsciously, we have a resilience. Yeah, well, some of, it, some of it's the grace of God and blind luck. You know, some people are just healthier than other people, and that makes a big difference. So, you know, you don't want to be too morally self-righteous about the absence of anxiety in your life. It, it could easily be due to your characterological strengths and your willingness to confront things voluntarily and all that. But health plays a big role. Um, health and good fortune. You know, I mean, you meet people now and then who are in their 40s and they've never suffered a serious loss from death, for example. We'll be back with more from Dr. Jordan Peterson. 
With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Do you think part of the reason that people find their path is because they know the story they're in? Oh, definitely. And, and some folks, they don't know what story they're in, or they're in someone else's story as a bit player, as you've, yeah. as you've articulated. Yeah, well, we've produced some things, some exercises online to help people get their story straight. There's one exercise called Future Authoring. That speak yeah, speak about that. I did that, actually. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, the idea was that it's it, it's based on exactly the questions you asked, which is, well... What's the story of your life? Is it a comedy or a tragedy? Comedy is something with a happy ending, fundamentally. And a tragedy is, well, it starts bad and gets worse. You know, and is it a tragedy that someone else is imposing on you or some bit, bit of you that you don't understand? What's the story of your life? Part of that is, well, what do you want? What are you aiming at? That's the reverse of sin, right? right. You're aiming at something. Well, the Future Authoring Program helps you determine what it is that would be good for you to aim at. What do you hope for? What do you hope for? When, and if you, so the exercise basically assumes that you treat yourself as if you're someone that you're taking care of. Mm-hmm. So that's the presupposition. You're valuable despite your flaws. It would be okay for you and maybe all right for the universe as a whole if your life wasn't any less, any more wretched than it has to be. So we could set it up for that. Right. Okay, so, so now if you were looking three to five years down into the future and you could, you could have what you needed Within the bounds of reason, what would it be? What do you want? What do you want from your family? What do you want from your friends? How are you going to educate yourself? What are you going to do for your career? How are you going to take care of your mental and physical health? How are you going to resist temptation? What are you going to do with your time outside of work that's productive and meaningful? You get to have it. It's like knock and the door will open. Okay, you've got to knock first. Well, and then you've got to pick the door. 
And like, oh, I really like this because it is, you cannot catch something you're not pursuing. So now, if you're pursuing it, that doesn't mean you'll catch it. But generally, you'll catch something interesting along the way. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's the thing that's so cool about this. Let's say you set out a vision, you start pursuing it. You don't get what you were after. But you learn a lot as you move towards that destination. And as you learn, your vision is going to change. And you may end up with something that's better than what you were aiming at to begin with. But that won't happen unless you initiate the journey. That's partly something I learned from, from the Abrahamic stories with the story of Abraham in particular, because God calls Abraham to an adventure when he's like 85. It's like, get out of your father's tent, for God's sake. Get out there in the world, right? And really, that's how the story is set up. Leave your family and your tent. It's time to get out in the world. Well, what does he confront? Famine is the first thing, tyranny, and the potential loss of his wife. Yeah. It's like Abraham must have been going. It's like the tent was tent's looking pretty good. But it's this call to adventure. Okay, so you put together a vision. That's your call to adventure. Get out there in the world and contend with it. Well, you might not get what you want, but you might find what you need. But it won't happen without the pursuit. And that's part of faith, right? Faith is, I'm going out in the world to seek my fortune. And if I do that properly, then the fates will cooperate with me. How, How do the archetypal stories that we, in our subconscious, have? These are these these. I mean, archetypal questions are the ones that everyone really is trying to ask, yeah. even if we can't put words to it right. How, how do they help us maintain our sanity? And do you think that's part of what we're struggling with right now, that we've, mm-hmm. we, we've lost touch with ancient wisdom, again, part of our collective unconscious, that should be there, should be part of us, that we've distanced ourselves from, either from technology or modern culture or whatever. Yeah. Well, look... We have the capacity for abstraction, right? And so to abstract means you can think without acting because otherwise it's useless. It's not abstraction then. So you can, you can peel reality away and represent it abstractly and then you can start manipulating it and you can criticize what you're representing. And we're doing an awful lot of that. A lot of that's subsidized, I would say, this intense criticism of our own structure. It's like, fair enough, you know? Yeah. But you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, especially if it's the divine child that you're throwing out, which is what it is. It's like criticism, this is where the, the left goes too far when it's criticizing. It's like, well, you can criticize the hierarchy. You can criticize the current instantiation of the hierarchy. It isn't obvious that you can criticize the idea of hierarchy itself. You're pushing a little too far then. You can describe the tyrannical nature, the partial tyrannical nature of the current societal structure. You can't say all hierarchies are patriarchal tyrannies. That's too far. You have to use some judgment. And so the the proclivity for... And the thing is, what are you trying to do when you criticize? If you're smart, like when I get my students to read Freud, it's like, or Nietzsche. Well, these guys had, A, they were bound bound by their time and place. And so they had presumptions that we no longer share. And B, they said things that were regrettable. Nietzsche said a variety of things about women that were regrettable. Um, Partly, I think, because he, he... didn't have that much success on the romantic front, partly because he was very ill, partly because he was isolated. Like, he had his reasons, but it's not that helpful. Maybe you read Nietzsche, it's like you get rid of 10% of it. But you keep the rest. You read Freud, it's the same thing. You read these people who were flawed humans, and you think, well, let's separate the wheat from the chaff. We're going to put it all in a pile and burn it. It's like, oh, Freud made a mistake. Burn him. That's what we're doing with people on social media. 
It's like, no, discriminate. There's a horrible word for people. Don't discriminate. It's like, yeah, discriminate, man. Like your life depended on it. You read these old thinkers and you think, well, no, no. Yes, that goes in the keep pile. That goes in the keep pile. We're not doing that with our culture. And it's partly because we don't have any gratitude as far as I can tell. And this is another thing I talk to my audiences about. Here's the story. Here's how to, here's how to survive in Indonesia. Okay, so you live on a mountain, but it's a volcano. <laughs> All right, so you get to climb up the volcano at night. It has to be at night because it's too hot otherwise. And so you have to climb up this volcano, and it's a mountain. Then you have to go inside the volcano down to near where the volcano is active because it's active. So it's belching out sulfuric clouds at you all the time. And if you encounter a bad one, then you just die. So when you have a mask around your face that's just a wet rag, and you go down to the volcano and you pick up a 40-pound clump of sulfur, and then you carry it up out of the volcano at night, because otherwise it's too hot, and then you carry it down the mountain and you get a couple of dollars so that you can do it again. Yeah, that's not your life. But someone has that life. And you don't have that life because look around you, man. This is a remarkable place that we've built. It's absolutely unbelievable. And most of the time it works. And you should be on your knees in gratitude for it. Even though you can also say, well, look, we don't have full equality of opportunity. We're not making the use of full use of the talents that everybody's bringing to the table. The system tilts towards tyranny from time to time and we have to keep an eye on it. It's like, yeah, but you're not hauling 40-pound sulfur boulders out of volcanoes at night. That's something, you know? So a little gratitude would, 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 would temper the, the criticism. You've made the point that part of the reason people get bitter is because they don't think they can be as good as they should be able to be. And a lot of that comes back to self-esteem. How do we build self-esteem at any age? Because I see that slip away in a lot of people. And without that, they don't have the confidence to act on some of the things you're speaking to. Okay, so self-esteem is a tricky concept because the best predictor of self-esteem is trait neuroticism. So the higher you are in trait neuroticism... Please explain that for everybody. there There are five cardinal personality traits. Extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness. I have a test that people can take. Understand myself. It allows them to assess those five traits broken down into two additional aspects. I took mine, by the way. My results were scary. Yeah, well, the, the test is designed so that everybody's results get to be scary. It's scary to find out who you are. Right. So, but how the trait neuroticism is a measure of the proclivity for negative emotion, anxiety and emotional pain, essentially. And the higher you are in that, the lower you score on tests of self-esteem. So self-esteem is not a very good measurement because basically it's a misnamed reverse neuroticism. So it's not easy to deal with that proclivity for anxiety. But there's a separate question, which is more like, how do you encourage people? Right. That's, and so it's not a matter of bolstering their self-esteem. It's actually, it's really important to get these things right because if you don't get the conceptions right, then the implementations fail. So it's about reducing neuroticism? Well, if you could, I don't think you can, What really. What you can do is make people more courageous. That's different. So even if you're treating people who are phobic, like agoraphobic, it isn't obvious that you make them less phobic. What is obvious is that you make them more courageous. So if you're treating someone who's agoraphobic and they, they, they won't go on an elevator, so they're afraid of the elevator, and you slowly expose them to the elevator, negotiating that, and they, they get to the point where they can get on the elevator, they don't really 
They're not really less afraid of death than they were. They're more confident of their ability to prevail in the face of adversity. And that you can teach that. And you do that by challenge. You do that through challenge. So if you want to build someone's self-esteem, let's say, but I would say encourage them, then set them a set of optimal challenges and allow them to watch themselves succeed at those challenges and that will build it right into their bones. All right, so let's go back to this lobster story since you're wearing the lobster tie, all right? So 350 million years ago, you had a hierarchy because there's hierarchies in most everything, it seems. Some lobsters win the hierarchy. They yeah. get to have all the female lobsters, I yeah. guess. What, what do you do with the lobsters at the bottom of the hierarchy? Now, today you say we've got to talk about them can't ignore them, yeah. but it's not easy just to engineer society to automatically manifest a better life. Although I think a lot of people say we can do better than we are for a lot of people who don't seem yeah. to really get a, they don't get a chance. Yeah. But what is the, the beta lobster? How do they get courageous? Well, I think we do a lot of, I think we have done a lot of things successfully in our society. So the first is, is that it's not a monolithic hierarchy by any stretch of the imagination. As we've made society more complex, the number of sub-hierarchies has multiplied tremendously. And so, each, let's say each of us comes to the table with a different set of weaknesses and strengths. Is It's highly probable that you'll be able to find a sub-hierarchy where your particular pattern of weaknesses and strengths actually constitutes the crucial element. Mm-hmm. So if you're high in agreeableness, for example, well, healthcare is a good field for you. And if yeah. you're really conscientious, then you can be a manager. And if you're open, then you can be entrepreneurial or creative. So play in a different hierarchy. Find the hierarchy that matches your temperament. That's a really good rule. And then we could say, well, let's diversify the hierarchies. And we are doing that and, and at a very rapid rate. My God, there's an endless number of diverse hierarchies on, online, for example. So you, 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 a, a, a sophisticated society produces a subset of hierarchy that's matched for as many people as possible. Okay, but then there's additional complications and some of them we don't know how to deal with. So for example, one of the things that predicts um, the ability to succeed in hierarchies across hierarchies seems to be associated with intelligence. So all things considered across most hierarchies, it's better to be intelligent. So then the question is, well, what do you do with, with people who are of less cognitive power? And that's an increasingly complex problem. So, and I don't think we have a straightforward solution to that because one of the dangers is, is that as our society becomes more technological and more cognitively complex, the effect of intelligence actually grows. And that's what the literature... So what do you do with, with members of our society who cannot compete? Because well, we have an obligation. That was one of the basic pris- One of the basic insights I gained from reading and listening to you was that we all have that spark of divinity. Yeah. That you can't leave. When Nietzsche said God is dead because science had prospered, but it only happened because religion first respected our specialness. Yeah. Each of us. Yeah. And only after that can we begin to transcend it. Okay, well, this is the way I, the way I look at this is that let's say that you're blessed with success, like you've been blessed with success. Okay, yeah. so you have a lot of resources at your disposal. Okay, now you can feel guilty about that, and perhaps to some degree that you should. That's yeah. between you and your conscience. But let's say that you've generated your resources in a fair game mm-hmm. and that a lot of people have benefited along with you. So you've played a straight game. Now you have all these resources. Okay, so what should you do with the resources? Well, impulsive pleasure. It's like, well, little of that goes a long ways and it's liable to take you down in a very, very yeah. short period of time. Yeah. Okay, I've so, done many shows on that. So. Right. Okay, so how about <laughs> not work, that? Doesn't work. Right. It's <laughs> not a good medium to long-term solution. 
okay, how about your ethical responsibility grows in proportion to the resources that you have at your control? And the right thing to do is that as you become more competent, authoritative, and able, is to expand the range in which you're operating to do more good. It's like you got a problem, you see some, some, something in the world that's bothering you, think, well, that's a problem. It's bothering me. Because that's an interesting thing. Not everyone bothers everything. Some things bother each of us. That's your problem, whatever bothers you. It's like, that's like a little marker. I don't know why it emerges. That's your problem. You should go out there and do something about that. Okay, so you have some excess resources. It's like, great, get at it. And this is one of the things I like about someone like Bill Gates, for example. It's like, what's he doing? Well, how about combating malaria? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> you got $60 billion, you want to wipe out malaria? That's, it might be a good thing that you have $60 billion if one of the consequences is that you're going to wipe out malaria, or at least you're going to try. And he's after the five major diseases, right? right? And actually, from what I've been able to read, is like making some headway. It's like, great. We had so much to discuss with Dr. Jordan Peterson that I've asked him to come back uh, for another visit. There's so much more to discuss, and I'm going to get right into it. Thank you, Dr. Jordan Peterson, for all you've shared with us. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.